0: you. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here in the first service, really enjoyed worshiping with you all and uh, uh, I totally agree with uh, Pastor Steve um, just getting together with other pastors and believers and uh, crying out to God together for the city, uh, for our churches and for God to bring a spiritual awakening. Uh, we need a spiritual awakening. I need one you need one we need one as a nation, we need one in this city. So uh, it's, just, it's just a great opportunity to connect. And just over the last year and a half, Freddie and I go back a ways and then he connected me with Steve and uh, it's just been a great time of prayer, fellowship and connecting. So uh, this morning I've been asked to share a little bit of my testimony. So I'm going to incorporate that for the first uh, part and then we'll be in John 11. We're entitling this, if you want a title for this message, we'll give you one. Uh, it's called The Resurrection and the Life. <clears throat> the Resurrection and the Life in John chapter 11. Some of the verses might be up there, but if you have Bibles, please feel free to dive in there. So, just a little bit about me. Um, you know, I uh, grew up in a Greek home, and uh, if you're Greek, you're Greek Orthodox by default. It's just a cultural connection, and many of you can relate depending on your culture, where you're from. It's almost like church uh, is sort of connected to that in some way. So, I grew up. Um, <clears throat> Going to, to church uh, a couple times a year, weddings, funerals, always on Easter service at midnight. I always really enjoyed that as a kid. But I never really understood the gospel. I'm not blaming anybody for that. I'm just, I'm just sharing with you my experience. Uh, a lot of faithful people there, but it never hit home. Uh, there, there was a lot of um, rituals. There were things that we would do that had meaning, in retrospect, when you study them, each one of those rituals had meaning. But at the time as a kid, I I didn't understand any of that. And I never really felt like I heard or understood the gospel. It wasn't until I was in high school that a friend of mine named Peter Roberts, um, I used to play basketball with him in a really rough neighborhood because that's where the good basketball was. So I would go there and we would hang out. And he got himself into a lot of trouble. uh, I think breaking and entering homes and stealing cars and stuff like that. And I wasn't involved in that. I was mostly there for the basketball, but I really liked him as a person. We just kind of connected, disappeared for a while in jail, showed up in high school, unrecognizable. Like when I say unrecognizable, I went into the library and I introduced myself to him. Didn't know it was him. And he turned around and looked at me and said, Hey, Gus. And I, I, I was shocked. He, he looked like a completely different person. His appearance, there was a light in his eyes. Uh, first thing I noticed, no cursing, no swearing. And he had, uh, we all used profanity at the time. We're not Christians. And I noticed that immediately. And he began to tell me that in jail, he met somebody who shared the gospel with him. And he repented of his sins and placed his faith in Jesus. And I mentioned this in the first service. The thing that really got me was that he said he had a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, you and I hear this all the time. A personal relationship just doesn't mean much to us because we were familiar with that. But at the time, that was earth-shattering. Never had heard that before. A personal relationship with Jesus. And I thought, wow, that's absolutely unbelievable. Was intrigued, visited his church a couple times, never really quite gave my life to Christ there. Um, <clears throat> I found myself in my fourth year of undergrad, ready to move to Boston. I was a jazz saxophonist in that lifetime before I pursued uh, Ministry. So that's what I was doing. I was um, going to go to New England Conservatory here in Boston, which is what brought me here. Um, one of the great saxophone players on the planet was there, and so I really wanted to get there. Anyway, uh, I was there probably a few months away from moving to Boston, and we went to some beach with a few friends, and we were thinking of getting drunk and going to the bar that evening. Uh, again, we were not believers. Walking down the beach on the way to the bar, probably 10 30 p.m. at night. And a guy, um, I'd say was about six foot four, pretty tall, salt and pepper hair. I could visualize him right now as I stand here. Uh, looked about sixty five years old. Had a t shirt on, just some slacks, regular looking guy. And he was walking behind us, and he started saying, "Young man, God has your number." Now I was about four or five of us together walking towards the bar uh, along the beach, and he said, "Young man, God has your number." And he says, "I, uh, I know you've been interested," and he started saying some things like. Um, God wants to pursue a relationship with you. He's really uh, looking for a relationship with you. He kept saying these things to me, things of that nature. Now, at the time, ever since my friend shared his testimony in high school, I had been reading my Bible, but I had nobody to explain to me what it meant. I never really understood the gospel at the time, never really committed my life to Christ. Uh, And this person was saying, God is looking for a relationship with you. I know you've been seeking him, saying some things like that. So I felt like, oh man, this guy's really uh, talking to me. And my friends thought he was a weirdo. So we got to the bar. We're about to go in. It was about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. I say to them, I said, look, you guys go in. I'm going to hang out and just talk to this guy for a few minutes. Why would you do that? That guy's crazy. You know what? I said, you guys go ahead. I'm just going to talk with him. And we sat down from like 11 p.m. to like 2.33 a.m. And he opened the scriptures. We sat on the curb of the street. He opened the scriptures and the Bible that I had been reading for several years made sense. And it it was like my heart was on fire. It was like um, the road to Emmaus. If you've read the story, these two men are walking and Jesus comes unbeknownst to them. He's kind of concealed his identity as he's walking with them. And he begins to reveal the scriptures and says, did not our hearts burn within us? This man began to share the gospel with me. And I said, Oh my God, I got to give my life to Christ. I said, You know what? I'm going to get rid of these friends. I'm going to get a brand new start when I go to Boston. I'm going to go there in a few months. I'm going to find a church and I'm going to start my new life. The guy said, Oh, you're going to Boston? Great. He pulls out a sheet of paper. He starts writing out all the solid biblical churches in Boston. Where were you, guys? I was in Toronto. I grew up in Toronto, Canada. So I grew up in Toronto, Canada. And I was telling him, I'm going to go to Boston. As soon as I said, I'm going to Boston. He so Toronto, Canada is nowhere near Boston, right? We're, we're, it's not a different country. So he pulls out the sheet, and he starts writing out churches. And he had a whole list of them. Maybe there was a dozen or 20. I don't know how many there were. Now, at the time, I was into it, and I, it didn't occur to me, how does this guy know? Like, what if I randomly said I went to Chicago? Would he know, like, churches for Chicago? It just seemed like it didn't make sense. But I didn't think about it at the time. So I sat down with him, and I was on fire. We walked home. All the guys were drunk, and I was like, my mind was just marinating on this. Long story short, I end up in Boston. I find myself at a music lesson with, I won't name his name, but the saxophone player who was top three, really, in the, on the planet. I was really there to study with him and one other guy. And he, there were groupies around him all the time. He was like uh, all over the world performing. Really miserable family life, divorced. Uh, he didn't know his children. He, he was, I know he was having affairs. He was, a, he was pretty much a, you know, an alcoholic. Pretty miserable. and He looked pretty depressed, but very famous and very well-known in the jazz world. So we're sitting there one day at a lesson, <clears throat> and he says to me, you see that saxophone right there? Um, that's your only friend in life. Sacrifice everything you've got. Just focus on that, and you'll do great. And somehow, he thought that was some kind of like, I don't know, pep talk. It really struck me the wrong way, and I, it, I was horrified. Because I said, if I look like this man, in 10, 20 years of my life, I would be a miserable failure. Now, you could be world famous, but no family, miserable divorce affairs. And I walked out of that room saying to myself, oh God, please don't let me be like this man. Please help me. And I said, that's it. I remember that guy I met on the beach. I'm going downstairs. I went to the, it was the, uh, the, the student board. And I looked, I had remember walking by, I had seen Bible study uh, the next night. It was a Thursday night or whatever it was. And I went to the Bible study and I met uh, a, one of my best friends in life who now is my, who became my best man at my wedding. He invited me to church. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I began this whole new journey. I finally gave my life to Christ, repented of my sins, placed my faith in Jesus Christ. One problem, though, once I did that, I still had something that I really struggled with for many years, for a number of years, uh, panic attacks. So I had this issue where, if anybody can relate, um, you could be driving your car, you could be walking down the street, and all of a sudden you, you feel, uh, it's like a terror it's like fear personified, it comes on you. It feels like it's going to crush you and snuff you out right there where you were. One of the most horrible experiences, and every time it would come on me, I would just go bury my, my head somewhere if I was driving in a car, I'd have to pull over. And every couple of weeks, I would have these for several years now. It was horrible, very, very horrible. And um, now that I was a Christian, I was like, God, you've got to help me with this. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for giving me a new relationship with you. Thank you, but I've got this thing. And I somehow was reading the Bible, and I read something, and I, I said, I'm going to go on a 10-day fast, prayer and fasting. And it said, some things, some demons don't come out except by prayer and fasting, whatever it was. I just was convinced I was going to pray and fast for 10 days, and God was going to help me. And parts of my testimony sound a little outlandish. And initially, when I began to share my testimony, I was almost a little embarrassed, like maybe some people wouldn't believe me, but... Uh, God delivered me from that years ago, obviously, and I just share it like it is. You could take it or leave it, but this is the God's honest truth. Um, I prayed and fasted for 10 days. On the 10th day, I began to feel a presence in the room. I felt the weight of God's presence, the best way I could describe it, and something was happening. I knew something was happening to me, and I just began to cry, God set me free, set me free from these horrible anxiety attacks. And all of a sudden, I heard a tremendous thump. Boom! I heard, like, the whole building felt like as if it shook at that moment. And when I heard that sound, I heard a still, small voice, the best way I could describe it, on the inside of my heart say, you are set free, now preach the gospel. That's what I heard. Now, in case I was losing my mind or hallucinating, I walked outside the the building. I was in a courtyard, in right downtown Boston, across from... Berkeley School of Music, and there was a whole courtyard with a big uh, glass uh, light, and, and as I walked out, everybody was outside of their apartment saying, did you hear that, what was that, did you see that, it's 2 p.m. in the afternoon, there's not a cloud in the sky, it's not raining, but something hit the building, now I don't know what that was, but whatever happened, God set me free, 24 years later, since I've given my life to Christ, I have not had a single panic attack in my life, ever, ever. Yeah, you can give him glory for that. So anyway, uh, I I got the word. Okay, I'm going to go into the ministry somehow. So uh, that's it. And I began to feel that I was supposed to lay down my career in music. Now, this was a radical thing. Remember, I was here. By this point, I was in master's degree. And I I used to practice six to eight hours a day. I was very dedicated. I I already was performing in some places. I was hoping to move to New York and as a jazz saxophonist. So this was a radical thing that I felt that God was asking me to do. I didn't say this in the first service, but people wonder, well, how did you know that God was telling you to do that? Like people are saying, I'm trying to get direction in my life. How would you know that God was telling you to do that? Well, first he told me, you're going to preach the gospel. But then I couldn't escape it. So I would wake up in the morning... This is how it happened. I was a baby Christian, and I would start to reading about losing your life in Christ. And let's say that would resonate with me. Wow. Then I would wake up, get in the car, get in the car. As soon as I had opened the the uh, the radio, I would, it would be set to the Christian channel, and Charles Stanley would come on and say, well, maybe you need to quit your career and serve God. Boom, I would close the radio. Amen. Then Sunday I would go to church, and all I could hear was the pastor's sermon was like, you need to give something up. You need to give your life. And it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't shake it from every angle. Let me tell you, people say, well, I don't know how to hear God's voice. Listen, if you're tuned into God, you, you, you can't miss it. He's going to speak to you. So I began to lay down my uh, career in music. And I was like, now what do I do? So I, I start looking for jobs. I felt like the Lord gave me a liberty to teach music, but not to perform, that I was eventually going to be involved in ministry somehow. So now I have no job. This was a terrible time economically at that time, late 90s, and um, I was stuck. So I couldn't find much. It had been a couple of months. I'd never been in a situation like that. Pretty privileged, middle class. So I'm, I'm stuck. I'm on ramen noodle diet, you know, 65 cents package of four ramen noodles. Throw a little egg in there. It's gourmet, right? That's all I had. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, mostly ramen noodles. So I'm running out of money. I get a knock at the door, eviction notice. You're going to be evicted in, like, I think it was 12 or 13 days. And I was like, oh, no. All of a sudden, it got very serious. And I, and I, I, I said, what do I do? Now, when, when something terrifying happens, fearful happens, I don't know if you're like me, I get type A. So I'm like, let's get a plan. Let's figure it out. And I had already sent out, I don't know, 100 resumes. But I start uh, like, a, back then, we didn't have computers. It was actually a word processor. I'm dating myself. But I got the papers. Okay, who, am I, who haven't I sent a resume to? I start panicking. What am I going to do? In the middle of my panic with all of these papers, I heard another voice on the inside, the same voice, say to me, if you pray, I'll help you. So at that moment, I dropped the papers, I got on my knees, and I began to weep. I said, God, I've given my life to you, I've given everything to you, please help me. I believe you have a call on my life, I, have, I haven't been able to find a job. As I'm mouthing these prayers, the telephone rings felt led to pick up the phone. Pick up the phone and this woman from Brookline Music School calls and says, "Um, I have a stack of resumes here and somebody just quit. I I, I just pulled it right out of the stack and could you start working next week? We need somebody. I thought, yeah. Wow. Hung up the phone. I was completely amazed how God answers prayer. You see, I, I was trying to figure it out myself and God answered my prayer then I, it was almost like Abraham interceding with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. I was like, Lord, permit me to make one additional request. By the time I start this job and I get my first paycheck, I'm already going to be evicted. Is there a place I can find cash right away? Somehow, some way. I don't know how you're going to do it. The phone rings again. This is the truth. The phone rings again. I pick up the phone. It's my friend who I just met recently at church. He said, "Hey, hey, Gus, I think you said you were Greek. Is that right? Did you say you were Greek? I said, yeah. I said, are you fluent in Greek? I said, yeah, I sure am. He says, listen, I've got a friend who paints houses, a house painting business, and he's desperate. He lost an employee. He needs somebody tomorrow, first thing, for a whole week, he'll pay you cash. I said, I'll take it. I got off the phone and just wept that God could be so gracious, God could be so kind. At the end of the week, just under the wire, I got the cash, I went to the woman, uh, at the front office, say, listen, I'm sorry, I've been late on my rent. Here's the, the money, and I have a job from now on, I'll be okay. She says, okay, we'll, we'll revoke the the the, uh, the eviction notice. And that was the beginning of my jury of faith. God had raised me from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that's the topic of our message here this morning, the resurrection life. We're going to look at the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11, and what we're going to do is consider... How does God raise dead things back to life? Now, it's not just a physical death. If you look at this, it's very clear that this is an object lesson. There are so many components to this that it becomes abundantly clear that God, through this resurrection of Lazarus, is trying to communicate something to us. In fact, when he's praying to God before he raises him from the dead, he says, thank God that I can do this so that those who see may believe. So God is trying to show us Just as I raised Lazarus from the dead, there are patterns here that will show us this is how God raises spiritually dead people back to life. We're going to read beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. And before we do that, uh, join me in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for your word. God, thank you for speaking to us right now. God, thank you that you love us so much that you came to this world So that through your death and resurrection, we could experience your resurrection life. Not only just one time when we're saved, but we have access to that resurrection life moment by moment, day by day. So Father, I'm praying today for those that aren't sure that they've been raised to life, that haven't experienced a a real change in their life, evidence that they've been saved. Lord, that you would do that this morning. You're inviting us to do that this morning. And for those of us that walk with you, we all experience spiritual deadness at times, sometimes apathy at times, that you would come and revitalize us afresh through your Holy Spirit. You would quicken us afresh, God. You would give us that resurrection life right there where we are in our present circumstance. Thank you for doing that work of grace. Speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 11, beginning in verse 1, as follows. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was now sick. So the sisters went and sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. Underscore that. The one whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, uh. Uh, He said, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When he heard this, he said, this sickness is not meant for death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that's pretty peculiar. We'll discuss that in a moment. But skip down to verse 20. So then Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. So the first verse I want to underscore here is uh, verse 3 of John 11 that we just read. And they said to Jesus, he whom you love is sick. Like Lazarus, we are all sick people. Not just physically sick, but spiritually sick. Infected with a sin nature for which there is no cure. And yet, we are loved by God. You and I have no ability to save ourselves because all the way back to our forefather Adam in the garden, when men rebelled against God, we were infected with a sin nature and you and I are prone to rebel against God, prone to go against the word of God, prone to do that which we want to do, not that which what, what God wants us to do. Listen to this description in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 4. Now, he's giving this description about the nation of Israel. And and he gets into the spiritual and the physical. But really, it's just a description of our sinful condition from head to toe. It says, Isaiah 4, uh, sorry, Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 4. O sinful nation, people weighed down with guilt, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The entire head is sick. The entire heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing healthy in it. Only bruises and slashes and raw wounds. Not pressing out or bandaged nor softened with oil. You and I are sick with a sin nature. This city as much as God loves it, is sick with a sin nature. Jesus came into the world because of the sickness of sin that has infected humanity. And because he so loved the world, he wanted to help us, to save us, to bring us out of this sinful condition. It's like a picture of somebody falling into a pit 20 feet deep with no ladder. You can't get out. There's no way out. But Jesus came from heaven to deliver us from this terrible condition of sin. Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even in your rebellion, even in our sinful condition, even when we were doing those things that are displeasing to God, without giving him the time of day, God still loves you and loves me. He loved us in that condition. That's what the Bible says. It says, the one whom you love is sick. That's me. That's you. That's the entire human race. John 11 verse 6 says this. No, sorry. John 11 verse 4 says this. This sickness is not the result of death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So you and I are sick. We're loved by God, but the sickness that we have is not to result in death, but for the glory of God so that many may be glorified by it. Even our sickness is meant to bring glory to God. Jesus is using a physical sickness of Lazarus to demonstrate a spiritual reality. We are all spiritually sick with sin, but when Jesus is invited into our lives, that which would normally result in death will now result in life through Jesus Christ. This salvation from death, which results from sin, brings great glory to God through his Son. Jesus will bring glory to the Father through redeeming many souls of men and women who were once sick with the sickness of sin, but redeemed through his blood. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus uh, our Lord. Thank God that he didn't leave us in that desperate condition, but he came to save you, and he came to save me. John 11, verse 6, says, When he heard that he was sick, Jesus, when heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that, that's pretty peculiar, if you ask me. He knew that Lazarus was teetering on death, and he was very, very sick. And instead of rushing to get over there, he waits two more days. That would be like you and I going to the hospital with a uh, a heart attack, and we're we're, we're fighting life and death, and we need intervention, and the the surgeon says, I'm going to go on lunch break. I'll come back in an hour, and let's see how you make out. It would be ludicrous. It would be... Who would do such a thing? And yet the disciples were wondering... I don't know what's going on. Why would Jesus, the one whom he loves is sick and is on the verge of death, and you want to stay two more days. I wonder why that was the case. I believe Jesus purposely refused to come while Lazarus was still alive. Why? No doubt doctors and healers came to try to help Lazarus, but Jesus wouldn't come while they were still trying to help Lazarus through their own methods. Jesus purposely waits until Lazarus is dead, triple dead, quadruple dead, four days dead, decomposing dead. He waited until all human effort had ceased, and Lazarus was beyond the hope of any human assistance. I once heard it said, God is an expert at raising the dead, but you have to realize that you're dead before he can bring you back to life. You see, God doesn't raise Dead people back to life. God, Sorry, God raises dead people back to life. He doesn't raise self-sufficient people back to life. God raises dead people back to life. He doesn't raise people trying to reform themselves back to life. God doesn't raise people who don't think they're dead but think they're rather a good person back to life. God raises dead people back to life but he doesn't raise people who are too busy to contemplate their own spiritual deadness back to life. God doesn't raise people who are too busy accumulating wealth to realize their spiritual deadness back to life. He doesn't raise people who are too preoccupied with their worldly pursuits to contemplate their own spiritual deadness back to life. Before Jesus could perform the resurrection of Lazarus, he had to make sure everyone was crystal clear He was dead. So Jesus waited until Lazarus was decomposing and the stench of death filled the atmosphere for everyone to observe. How about you this morning? Do you know that you know that you know that apart from Christ, you are dead in the decomposition, in the rottenness of your sin? If you want to be raised to life spiritually, you have to know beyond any doubt that in your deadness, and your trespasses, and your sins, you are beyond help to save yourself. Resurrection life is possible only through Jesus Christ. Resurrection life is possible. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. There is no other way. John 11, beginning in verse 23, puts it this way. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Speaking to Martha, John 11:23. 23. In verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I have come believe, to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, He who comes in to the world. Resurrection life became possible because Mary and Martha invited Jesus into their hopelessness, into their death, and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what happens to every one of us when we're born again, isn't it? Mary and Martha sent the I don't know, the telegram somehow, they got a message over to Jesus, said, hey, the one whom you love is sick. That's like me and you praying, God, I know you love me, but I'm sick. I'm bound in sin, I can't get out. I invite you, they invited Jesus to come to their home, Mary and Martha, I invite you to come. And as they invited him, Jesus challenges them, I'm here, I stand at the door and knock, it says in Revelation chapter three, whoever opens the door, I will come in. He doesn't force his way in. And so she says, he says to Martha, before I can perform this resurrection, I have a question for you. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the Messiah. I'm Yeshua, Hamashiach. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. And Jesus proceeds to perform the resurrection. It's the same way in your life, and it's the same way in my life. You first invite him, then you confess him as Lord and Savior, and he will come in to your life. That's what happened with Lazarus. And that's what will happen in your life, in my life as well. Resurrection life is made possible for us because Jesus has deep compassion for you. I want you to understand that this morning. Resurrection resurrection life is possible because Jesus has deep compassion for you. God isn't just a distant creator who is uninterested or uninvolved in your life. If he was, why would we send Jesus into the world to come and save us? His name is Emmanuel. God is with us. You need to know that Jesus is deeply troubled and deeply moved by your personal struggles. He's moved with compassion on your behalf. He wants to bring you resurrection life. I don't know where you are at this morning. We all have issues. We all have struggles, Christian or not. You have struggles. Maybe you have a relational struggle this morning. Maybe it's a financial problem. Maybe it's a a pattern of behavior that you can't break out of. Maybe it's an anxiety or a fear or a depression or whatever it might be. As you're struggling with that, you need to understand, you and I need to be reminded that Jesus is deeply concerned with your plight. He's deeply moved with compassion. He cares with what you're dealing with right now. He's very, very concerned. You know, there's this notion that we believe that God is the divine watchmaker. He sets it in motion and then stands back and allows things to unfold, and he's indifferent in our lives. That's absolutely not the God of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus came, took on flesh, In the form of mankind to live and walk among us. And he dealt with struggles like you deal with. People think, well, I don't know if Jesus understands my struggle. He's God. How could he possibly understand? Well, he came. Jesus came. And he lived among us. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet without sin. But he experienced the temptation. You said, well, I have relational problems. What about Jesus? He didn't have that. Well, he was betrayed, wasn't he? He experienced betrayal. He experienced relational trouble. He experienced hostility. He experienced joy. He experienced experienced the whole gamut of our emotional uh, experience in life. And yet, you and I sometimes think, well, he couldn't possibly care about me. Well, listen to this. Let's read this together. Jump down um, to chapter 11, same chapter, John, verse 33. Now, Mary comes out weeping. Therefore, when Jesus saw her, Mary saw her weeping. The Jews came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved. This is Jesus. He was deeply moved in spirit. And it says, he was troubled. And he said, where have you laved him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Then it says, the shortest verse in the Bible, as you know, Jesus wept. He just starts bawling. He starts weeping as he sees them experiencing pain as he sees them crying over their beloved Lazarus' death, he looks upon them and he has this, he's moved with compassion. And the Jews started saying, oh, how he must have loved him. But some said, how could this man who opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Now listen to this in verse 38. This is very important. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved, went to the tomb. You see, his compassion His experience of empathy drove him to go to the tomb and perform that resurrection. You see, Jesus, when he looks at your life and he sees the anguish and he sees the pain and he sees what you're experiencing and you think, well, I wonder if anybody cares. God weeps, Jesus weeps. It says in the Bible, and this is a mind-boggling thing to contemplate, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession on your behalf. Can you believe that this morning? This God who came and died, and was ridiculed and was beaten and was murdered in a horrible way and paid a penalty that he did not deserve now he's up there at the right hand of the father praying for you man help that sister with her depression help this person with that pattern of sin help this person Take, remove the, the 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 stumbling block so that he can come to me he's praying on your behalf he's moved with compassion Do you have a theology that allows you to believe that Jesus is moved, that he loves you, that he cares, that he's concerned with your life? You've got to believe that. You know, the Bible says that you've got to believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. If you're going to believe that he's going to reward you, you've got to believe that he loves you and wants to help you. You've got to believe that. Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why was he weeping? Think about this. Why the weeping? He, he, should have, he could have said, if it was me, I would have said, hey guys, stop crying. I'm going to raise him in five minutes. Like, this is no point. What's the point of you crying? He's going to be raised in five minutes. You see, you and I think sometimes, well, this is silly. Uh, you know, why would God care about my circumstance? It's my own fault. I made a mistake. I fell into it. Or this is going to be over next month or whatever it is. You see, God, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he saw their anguish. And that's what he was moved with. So don't ever think, oh, God doesn't care, or this is silly. No, 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 he, he's really, really, really concerned. He was deeply moved. His compassion, God is, he isn't just all-knowing, all-powerful. He's all-loving, all-caring, and understanding, and empathetic, and sympathetic to your suffering. Jesus feels your pain. He weeps over your struggle. His compassion moves him to action on your behalf. Hebrews four fifteen. And 16 puts it this way. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and may find grace in a time of need. He's the sympathetic high priest. You can come to him knowing that he loves you and cares for you deeply. Now before Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead, he first commanded that they remove the stone. He commanded that they remove the stone. Now, this is also very interesting to me. This God, Jesus, God in the flesh, who was there with the Father when he flung the universe into existence, he could do whatever he wanted. He was about to raise a dead person back to life, was decomposing four days. He could do whatever he wanted, and yet he asked them to remove the stone. Isn't that interesting to you? Why couldn't he just, he could have just done it himself. No problem. But he wanted them to remove the stone. I would submit to you that the stone represents unbelief. Let me prove to you why I think that. Let's read it there in verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, objects to moving the the stone and says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench He's been dead four days. It'll be embarrassing. Everyone's going to know how hopeless this is. And just in case you can't raise him from the dead, this is going to be terrible. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, in case we weren't sure if this is a belief issue, he he says it right here. Didn't I say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. We know that stones represent unbelief. This is why Mary was resisting that, or that particular stone represented that. You see, God can't make you roll away your doubt, the stone of your doubt, and make you trust in Jesus. Faith in Christ is something you must choose to do. That's why he asks them to remove the stone of unbelief. He... He, you have to make that decision before he will proceed to perform the resurrection. The Holy Spirit is already at work in your life. The prevenient grace of God is already working to woo you to bring the revelation. God gets all the glory for you even making that decision. But you've got to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You've got to say yes. You have to choose to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's, I believe, what Jesus was saying to Mary and Martha. John 11, verse 43 Put it this way. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So I want to close with, with this final these final thoughts. In this last portion of scripture that I just read, three important things happen with Lazarus that brought about his resurrection that happens in our lives as we are resurrected from death to life, our spiritual death and resurrected to newness unison life. Three things. He calls Lazarus by name, then he raises him from the dead, then he unbinds him and he sets him free. So first, Jesus calls Lazarus by name. God's, he said, Lazarus, come out. He speaks his name. Salvation is personal to God. He knows you by name so that you will know. He calls you by name so that you will know you belong to him. Isaiah 43, 1. Do not fear. God is speaking to the Israelites, but you can, you can receive this yourself. It's the same thing. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Before the foundation of the world, God knew he had you in mind. He knew you were going to be born. In Jeremiah, he says that he formed you even in in your mother's womb. And he had a purpose. He had a plan for your life. He was going to call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He was going to perform a resurrection on your life so that you could bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Wherever you go, you could speak of the goodness of God that he's performed in your life. That purpose was preordained before the foundation of the world. It's personal. It's not just he so loved the world, plural, but he so loved you. Put your name in there. He so loved you as a person. You've got to believe that. You've got to understand that. Second, and actually i have the worship team come up whenever you want. You can start whenever you feel ready. We said he called Lazarus by name, then he raises him to the dead. How much help did Lazarus contribute to his own resurrection? Zero. How much help did you contribute to your own salvation? Zero. Well, you believed, and yet God was at work in your heart revealing Jesus to you, so it's it's all for God's glory, right? It's by his grace through faith in Christ alone. So he gets all the glory. Lazarus couldn 't contribute anything because he was dead, just in case anyone thought you know he waited until he was dead, in case anyone would think, well, maybe they, maybe the doctors helped or no, he wanted to be clear that this guy's dead, four days dead, and the same thing for you and I. He wants us to be clear that you can't contribute anything to your own salvation. you've got to reckon yourself dead, you've got to realize total depravity, apart from God, I can do no good thing and then cry out to Jesus and say, God, help me. God, save me by your blood. I repent of my sins. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Only you alone can save me, Lord. That's the message he wants us to get. Now, the last thing that happens here is that he says, unbind him and set him free. So he calls Lazarus by name, He himself performs the resurrection, no contribution by anyone else. And then lastly, he says, unbind him and set him free. Once we are spiritually raised from the dead, we are no longer bound, no longer bound by the power of sin as we were in our former way of life. We now live a new resurrected life in Christ, free from the bondage of sin. Romans 8, 2 For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So as the worship team just begins to play, let me just have you marinate on this one last thought. You are no longer under the bondage of sin. He called you by name. He performed the resurrection. And then he set you free. The power of sin is no longer dominating your life. Romans chapter 6. Sin shall not be master over you because you are not under the law. You're under grace. You see, you can still sin and you will occasionally sin because you're not, you still have a sin nature. But you're no longer under the dominion. You're no longer controlled by sin. You don't have to sin anymore. Before you were in Christ, you were still bound. You see, he called Lazarus by name. He performed the resurrection. He alone performed that resurrection. Then he said, unbind him and let him go. And that's what he does in your life in my life calls you by name, raises you from the dead, he sets you free to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing picture of what what he does? So what about you this morning? Are you in need of Christ's resurrection life today? Do you understand that you are spiritually dead beyond all hope to reform yourself through your own effort? Maybe you've been trying hard to change certain things in your life, and that's that's good that you're trying to do that. Maybe you keep failing in those patterns. Do you recognize that on your own, you can't do it? You know, the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Have you hit your head up against the wall enough times to realize, God, help me. Maybe you're like me with all those resumes and just dropped it and said, God, help me. Finally, God, help me. Are you there yet? Are you willing to invite Jesus into your life the way Mary and Martha invited Jesus to come into their home to perform a resurrection? Are you willing to invite him in to raise you from death to life? Are you willing to roll away the stone of unbelief and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for your life? If so, he will raise you from spiritual death and give you resurrection life through Jesus Christ. But this message, I don't want to have any confusion about this. This message is not for those that need to be saved. Not only for those that need to be saved. It's first and foremost for those. But we all fall into patterns of spiritual apathy, of spiritual deadness. Sometimes we need to re-invite Jesus afresh into our lives to fill us with resurrection power through His Holy Spirit. So there's really two categories of people here I want to pray for. If you don't know that you've been raised to life. Say, well, how do I know? I went to church for many years. I even read the Bible for several years and I I, I wasn't raised to life. I I knew I wasn't saved. There hadn't been that transformation. You'll know when that happens. And so if that's you and you're like, I don't really know. I kind of went to church. I've been coming here a little bit. I've listened to things online. I kind of feel like I'm churched. Have you invited Jesus into your life? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in and say, well, I don't know if I can repent. I, 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 I struggle with things. Well, God will help you. God will help you. But are you willing to turn away from those things that are displeasing to God and do those things that are pleasing? You can't do that on your own. Are you willing to say, God, I repent and I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I roll away the stone of unbelief. You can do that this morning. As we worship, think about that. Meditate upon that. And we'll give you an opportunity to do that. But lastly, also for the other category of people, you're a Christian, you're walking with God, but there's some deadness, there's some apathy. I'm not seeking God the way I'd like to. There's no condemnation, but there's an opportunity. They say, God, help me. Give me fresh resurrection life through your Holy Spirit. So I invite you in afresh. So as we worship for a moment,